Well, if you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17. As we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark that we're calling the Unserved King. Jesus came not to deserve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark teaches us that so powerfully. I'm going to read verse 17 as we begin our time together. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Mark chapter 2 and here verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Oh God, I pray that those words would sink deep into our hearts. That we would not be scared or frustrated or irritated that we call ourselves sinners. God, today that we would stop playing the game and trying to act like we have it together with some sort of plastic righteousness. God, we would be honest about the state of our soul, especially those apart from Christ. God, it is not our sin that keeps us from you. It is the denial of our sin that keeps us from you. And so would we confess that you did not come to save the righteous or call the righteous, but the sinners. And would we all be willing to raise our hand and say that as well. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Growing up during the summer when my mom would work, I usually spent each day at one of my two great aunts' homes. Now, I love these ladies to death, uh, very much a part of my life growing up, raising me. But they couldn't be more different, these two aunts of mine. I mean, it would have been, it's like uh, whiplash thinking about going from one house to the other and how different they were in their personalities and how different their homes were. Aunt number one, and I'm going to refer to her that way because she's still to the sermons, so hopefully she will not know that I'm talking about her in these moments. Aunt Bonnie, I am talking about you, so there you go. But she was very well off. She had a lot of money, really, really, really nice home that she lived in. You'd walk in her house and her furniture, it was like you were at a showroom. Everything was so nice. Everything was so pristine. Her beds, her couches, her tables. I remember at times uh, sitting on her carpet, watching TV and thinking, man, this just, this carpet is so clean. It, it is just, it, it smells so clean. Everything is so nice here. Her shelves were, were long, uh, lined with the most expensive of decorations, things you didn't touch, glass, silver, those sort of things on her shelves all around her house. I remember at times thinking her animals, she had dogs and cats, and I remember playing with them at times and thinking these things just smell clean and expensive. Her dogs don't even, don't even seem real. 
They're, they're so nice. And we would eat each day at a really long table, very nice table, nice meals. And then there was Aunt Janice. Now, she lived out in the country. She lived out in the sticks, the boondocks. And Aunt Janice was totally different than my Aunt Bonnie. Her house was kind of run down. It was kind of, you could tell her house was sort of pieced together over the years as they had more kids and they needed more space. Her husband would just go outside and build another wing to the house and it was pieced together in that way. Still had a tin roof on her house. I remember walking through her house and I still remember it, the, the checkerboard linoleum, it would bubble up in places and was cut in places. She had no air conditioning in her home. She just had these big box fans everywhere. And you'd go out on her front and back porch and you'd have chickens running around, dogs, any kind of animals, stray animals that would come up. We didn't eat at a nice table. We would eat it on card tables watching black and white TV, Andy Griffith show. And in her living room, what set it all off, in her living room, There was a poster, yes, a poster of Hank Williams, Jr. Not senior, junior. Bo Cephas, shirtless, in all his glory, in her living room. And I can tell you, when I was informed in the morning, hey, you're going to stay with your Aunt Bonnie today, there would always be a sense of sort of fear and anxiety I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in her house and all her nice furniture. I can't spill anything. I remember my parents setting me down, you can't run in her house. You can't spill anything. And please don't tear anything up today. Always a bit nervous, full of anxiety in her home that you're going to break something. But not at Aunt Janice's. When I was told I was going to Aunt Janice's, I wasn't worried about a thing. You could run in her house. You could break things. She would never know it. Could spill things on the floor, yell, scream. It was going to be a loud, ruckus day with Hank Williams Jr. and all his rowdy friends over. That was sort of her house. It was the tale of two homes. One nice, pristine, and one a little backwoods, country ruckus. And As we've moved through Mark, Jesus is trying to tell us the story of two houses. Have you noticed Jesus has spent so much time preaching in the synagogues? And what is he doing as he's preaching in the synagogues? Every time it's mentioned that he's in the synagogues, Mark adds he's casting out demons. He's trying to tell us a story of the synagogue, this place that would have been nice, pristine, It would have seemed to be a place that Jesus would have felt comfortable at. But he's casting out demons. He's saying behind the scenes, it's not as all as it seems. Behind the scenes is where the wild things are. The dangerous things. Even in this place that is nice and pretty and you'd think Jesus would be at home. And then we begin to see today the story of another house. A house that would have not been nice and pretty. And when you walked up to the door, you would have been nervous about going in. Because you would have seen outcasts, misfits, 
as we'll see today, the party crowd. And Jesus is trying to communicate there is more than meets the eye. He's trying to tell us a story of two houses, those who build their house, get their house in order with nice and pretty things, and those who admit their house is just a mess. And we see Jesus is comfortable in the messy home. Notice verse 1, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now we learned last week as Jesus has been teaching in Capernaum that people are just flocking to him. They can't get enough of his teaching. They can't get enough of the signs and wonders. Jesus can't go anywhere in these little towns and villages without people seeing him and noticing him and wanting to be around him. And so Jesus leaves the city and he goes on a sort of a mission trip around the Sea of Galilee. And he is preaching and he's teaching. It was during this time that he taught the Sermon on the Mount. But here, notice he's back at home in Capernaum. This was Peter's home. But notice Mark refers to it even as Jesus' home here. This place that he has made his headquarters. And notice verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Sounds like some of y'all's BFGs during COVID. They're packed in. They've got to be together around Jesus. They want to hear Him teach. There's no room. You can't get in the door. And notice He was preaching to them the Word. Now, this is emphasized throughout the Gospel of Mark. and We just got to get used to it. Jesus went about teaching and preaching. The Word was central to Jesus' life. And notice verse 3. As this was going on, the crowd is packed in. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. All of the sudden, coming up the street, four men with a stretcher. And on the stretcher is a man who has never walked. I don't really know why. If there was an accident or from birth, he wasn't able to walk. He's been paralyzed. And they make their way to the door. And can you only imagine, Jesus is back in town. Let's go get our friend. Our paralyzed friend needs to meet Jesus. And they make their way up and they would have heard the crowd. And they get to the front door and there's no way they're getting in. And can you imagine their hearts sink? But notice they don't turn around and go home. Notice as what we'll see here, their faith. Verse 4. And when they could not get near him, they realized they were not going to be able to push their way through the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So do do you see their intensity, their aggressiveness? Whatever it takes, our friend needs to see Jesus. We're going to do whatever it takes. And so they can't get in the door. And so they begin to go around and they probably went up the back way. And roofs during that time were flat. That's where you would have spent your evening on top of your house in the cool of night. They make their way to the roof and they begin to take out tools. And began to stab the, the, the top of this house to pierce it. And they, they make an opening big enough to, 
to, with ropes, drop their friend down into the presence of Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus teaching on the kingdom, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, the, the good news of the kingdom has come, is in my flesh, and all of a sudden straw and mud begins to fall on him? Can you imagine the guy who owns the home or Peter or whoever? What are they doing to my roof? And Jesus just stands there as this man is placed before him by his friends. And we wonder, what is Jesus about to do? Because we know they have brought him to Jesus, we would say, to be healed by Jesus. But notice what Jesus does, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, their intensity, we're not giving up. We're not going back home. We're going to make sure our friend is before Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're honest, your heart sinks a little bit. And if you were there, the man's lowered before Jesus and you're like, oh, we're about to see another one. We're about to see another miracle, sign and wonder. Son, your sins are forgiven. What what does that mean? He needs to be healed, Jesus. What are you doing? What are you talking about? Sins forgiven. Notice he points to their faith here. And one of the things we see about faith here, especially in the Gospels, is when someone believes in Jesus and they follow Jesus, it's not a passive thing. It's not this inner disposition that doesn't affect anything. These men believe in the person of Jesus that he can heal their friend, whatever their friend needs. And so they are determined to get to Jesus. They're tearing the house down to get to Jesus. Their faith is displayed in that way. They have confidence in Jesus, the person of Jesus. And it's true. Jesus has come to deliver us from sin and death. That's, that's who he is in his person. He's the king that does this. And so they believe in that. And so that is what offers them forgiveness of sin is Jesus, the one who will deliver them from sin. They trust him. They believe in him. Your sins are forgiven. Literally, it means you are released from the penalty or bondage of guilt. Now, what's interesting is many would have been standing there looking at this paralytic And he was the picture of one who was unaccepted by God. Many believed he was paralyzed because of some personal sin. Maybe it was his parents' sin. Maybe it was sin, his own sin. But God had cursed him in this way and he would have been lame. He would have never gone to the temple. He would have never been involved in worship in the house of the Lord. But it is in the house of Jesus that he releases him from bondage. Whatever guilt you're living with wouldn't necessarily because of his own sin. It's the curse of sin in the world. He's paralyzed. He says, but personally, your sins are forgiven. You are free from this bondage. And the point here is Jesus does the unexpected to bring attention to who he is. What has Jesus been telling us? All these signs, all the fireworks, all of uh, the big show. People are walking that have never walked before. People are seeing that have never seen before. Controlling nature, casting out demons. Jesus brings attention in this moment. I want you to focus on why I am here. And it is for forgiveness of sin. If you never have your sins forgiven, 
You will always live in death and the curse of death. This is the heart of the issue, sin. And so Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And one of the reasons he deals with it this way is because of those who are standing around. Notice verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there. And these were teachers of the law. They held to their traditions of the law, experts in the law. Notice what they're doing. They're questioning in their hearts. Doubting. There's no way this guy can say something like that. Well, who does he think he is? Verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that's the point. Jesus can forgive sins. He's God in flesh. But notice what they accuse him of. Blasphemy. The word blasphemy literally means to bore holes in something. And they are accusing Jesus of boring holes into the name of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God has all authority and power. How can this man claim that he can forgive sins? He's treating God's name casually. He's cursing the name of God. And verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves. Jesus understands their thoughts and intents. And one of the things we see with Jesus that is so powerful He's so in tune with what the scribes and the skeptics are doing. He brings it to the fore. He doesn't allow the whispers. He doesn't allow the questioning. He says, all right, let's deal with it. What are you doing over there murmuring? I know what you're thinking. It's the same thing that goes on with our kids. We're in public and we look across the room and we see it in their eyes. They are about to do something I told them not to do. They're about to touch that thing. They're about to run. They're about to scream they're about to say something they shouldn't and across the room no stop it everybody stops it's exactly what jesus does i know what you're doing stop stop thinking that way and let's just deal with it let's get it out in the open he says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk now this is to leave us even when we Ask us the question, what's easier? How would you answer that question? What would you say? What is easier? At first glance, we would say, to say to a paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's the more difficult thing to do, right? It's easy just to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. What proof do you have that you can forgive sin? And then Jesus said, so that you know. So that you may know. So that you may have proof. That the power in my words to say your sins are forgiven is just as powerful as rise, pick up your bed. So that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. God's King in flesh. He is the source of forgiveness in flesh. Notice verse 11. I say to you, turning to the man laying there. Can you imagine his thoughts in this moment? I just wanted to see Jesus. I didn't think there was going to be a debate. I didn't think I was going to be the source of controversy. Looking up at everything going on. And he looks down at him and he says, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And notice, and he rose immediately. Rose immediately. Doesn't even see, Mark emphasizes there wasn't even any questioning. As soon as Jesus spoke the words, he began to feel again. His fingertips, his toes, he began to wiggle his toes. 
these things are working. He stands up, and I imagine the crowd backed up and said, Whoa, what is going on here? Can you imagine that first step? Just making sure your knee's going to hold. I don't know what this is like. Making sure your your ankles aren't going to give way. And he stands up, picks up his little cot, and walks out. And there are no more whispers about what Jesus is doing. Notice the text says, He went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God. Only God could do this. We have never seen anything like this. And so as the scribes and Pharisees are whispering in the background, Jesus brings it all to the fore who He is. And the same word that says get up and walk is the same word that says your sins are forgiven. And He's emphasizing His power and He's emphasizing His authority to do so. But one of the things we'll see with the scribes and Pharisees is it doesn't matter what Jesus does. The signs and wonders don't matter to them because they do not believe the Word. It is by faith in the Word that your sins are forgiven. Not just being amazed at the signs and wonders. And Jesus said, I can do all of these things. You're never going to believe. And so the question for us here today is we've seen more than a paralyzed man getting up and walking. No, we've seen a man back from the dead. And so the question for us is, why are we demanding more? You've seen the greatest sign. You want to know if Jesus can look at you and say your sins are forgiven? Look to the cross. His authority to forgive sins is displayed on the cross as the sinless Son of God who endures the wrath and judgment of God. It is poured out upon Him until He cannot walk. Until he is dead, forsaken by God, on the cross. And Jesus has to have his friends come and take him down. And lay him on a bed in an empty tomb. And then three days later, get up and walk. The Spirit of God raises the Son of God from the dead. And Jesus says, here's your sign. Here's your sign. You want to know if I can forgive your sins? There it is. The question is, why are you questioning things in your heart? Many of you come here today and you're not believing the gospel because you want God to do something else. And you're saying to God, if you would just give me a sign, I would believe. You ever prayed that prayer? Something you feel so intense about. God, if you would just answer this prayer, if you would answer this prayer, I will believe you. If you just answer this prayer, I will never sin again. If you just answer this prayer, I will follow you all the days of my life. If you would just do this, do this, give me more money, fix my marriage, make sure I get into this school, make sure I get this job. God, if you would just answer this prayer, then I I would follow you. And yet you have a former corpse standing before you saying... Your sins can be forgiven. What else do you want? What other sign do you need? Jesus would say to you today, is it easier for me to say to you, your finances are restored? Or hanging on a bloody cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you would never have to be forsaken. Which is easier? Is it easier to say to you, your marriage is fixed? 
I'm going to restore your marriage. Or it is finished suffocating in blood. Which is easier? Which is more difficult? A bloody cross says that your sins are forgiven. What else are you demanding of God before you would follow after Him? Is it easier to give you what you want or to forgive you of your sins? And then you get all you need. Why are you demanding more from Jesus? Notice Jesus gives us another sign at the tax booth, verse 13. And He went out again beside the sea. Remember we talked about this when He calls the fishermen a flat part on the Sea of Galilee. There would have been boats. There would have been nets there. All the fishermen are there. And amidst it all, as they're walking, crowds following after him. Again, so important. Jesus' celebrity status at this point. And notice what he keeps doing. Teaching. Teaching. Never stops teaching. Never stops talking about the gospel. Never stops preaching. Verse 14. As he's walking amidst the chaos. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is Matthew, the tax collector. And he's sitting in his tax booth, a little kiosk, out among the boats and nets. Can you imagine the fishermen walking by? They've been with Jesus. They've been on the mission trips with Jesus. They've heard him teach with authority. And Jesus walking by this tax booth, which would have been a sign of just sin and wickedness in many people's minds. You see, tax collectors, they would make bids with the Roman government about how much they could collect in taxes. And so they would be able to collect taxes if they promised the Roman government they would collect the most taxes. But then they were given the freedom to take off the top. Oh, you, you give us that much money and then whatever extra you can collect, you keep for yourself. And so they were corrupt and they were scoundrels and they lied about the rates so that they could have more money. The tax collectors were seen as more disgusting than the Roman government. People hated tax collectors. They were in partnership with the Roman government benefiting off the people. And so this tax booth, that's a place we, if we, if we could, we'd burn it down. And here's Jesus walking over to it. And can you imagine his men? Why are you going over there? Nobody goes over there unless they have to. Jesus, don't call attention to us. We may owe taxes. Can you imagine Jesus gets up to the window and he looks in. And there's little Matthew. Probably shocked anybody would come over and talk to him. Nobody, nobody comes up to my booth, especially with a smile on their face. Notice the words of Jesus. He said, follow me. Command. That means come be with me. Nobody wanted to be with Matthew. To do his job, he would have had to leave his family. His family would have disowned him. They didn't want anything to do with him. Nobody had spoken to this man because he was corrupt. He was a bad man. And there's the face of the Savior peering in his tax booth. Let's go. Let's go. And this man who we see in the Gospel of Matthew, he loves money. Matthew talks a lot about money. 
who has left his family and left it all to make a living in this corrupt way, loves it, leaves his books on the table, leaves the cash in the drawer, and gets up and walks out and follows Jesus. And this is to remind us of what we've just seen with the paralytic. Get up and walk. Follow me. And we're being reminded of the power of his word. Matthew obeys because he can't help but obey. It's the power of Jesus' word. Follow, come after me, come be with me. And he gets up and he walks just like the paralytic. And then verse 15, where do they go? And as he reclined at table in his house. It's so funny how Mark just skips, skips to the details. Let's get to the, let's get to the meat of the story. Matthew follows him. Where do they go? Well, obviously they went to his house. And here we find Jesus reclining at table. Now he's eating a meal. Now meals during this time, they weren't sort of the fast food way we think about eating. It wasn't rushing through the potluck line, sitting down at the table, scarfing it all in and moving along, which some of you were supposed to do in the barn last week and you never did that. We had massive crowds in the barn, COVID parties. It wasn't this fast-paced thing. No, you, you actually laid down. Kind of what you do at night when you got the late-night snack in bed and you're laying there. And you would have walked in to this house and you would have seen Jesus relaxed, lying beside a table. And notice who's surrounding him. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And don't think for one minute when you walked into that house, you would not have been scandalized by what you saw. Because you would have seen the Savior surrounded by a bunch of sinners around the table eating. And the scene, you would have said, what in the world? How did all these tax collectors, how did they get to Jesus? Why are the sinners summarizing prostitutes, the worst of the day, those who had been outcast by the society, the meth heads, those that no one wanted anything to do with, the sick, the poor, the worst of the worst are lying around, reclining, eating a meal with Jesus. Notice the text says, for many, there were many who followed him. Not just Matthew. Hey, Matthew, you're the worst of the worst. Follow me. Well, if Matthew can follow this guy, I'm going to follow him too. And as they make their way to Matthew's house, can you only imagine walking through the streets? Where are we going? Oh, we're going to have a party. Jesus, can I invite these people over? Yeah, invite them all. Do you know who these people are? Yeah, let's go. Let's have a party. Let's go eat. And here they are. And then verse 16, the scribes and Pharisees. Now remember, these are teachers of the law. The Pharisees were those who applied the law, but in such stringent ways that they wanted to separate according to the law from everyone else, sinners, that they came up with their own laws. And here they are. Now they are the curmudgeons. They are the lady with the iPhone camera running over to your house, making sure everybody's got their mask on. Why do you got more than 10 people here? That's who they are. I called them something else and I offended some people by that name in the last service, so I won't use that term this service. But these are the well-actuallys. 
Because you, you know when you make that post on social media, you got the well actuallys, and they're going to eat up your comment section. Well, actually, that's not true. And, and they're going to critique, and they're going to create controversy. The scribes and Pharisees, this is who they are. They're critiquing Jesus. Notice when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice what cowards they are. Notice what cowards they are. They don't go to Jesus ever at this point. No, James, James, isn't your name James? John. Hey, why is he doing this? Why is he here among the unclean? He's a rabbi. Doesn't he know this makes him unclean? He's going to lose respect in the community. You know, I know he's got this message, the gospel, the kingdom at hand. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I know he's teaching you all these things. Nobody's going to listen to him if he hangs out with these people. Why, why is he over here? This is a rough part of town. And, and here's Matthew. He's throwing a party for Jesus. This would have been an extravagant party. He would have used his money to collect all of his friends. The neighbors would have been bothered by the loud music. And here the curmudgeons show up. Why does he do this? Well, Jesus does it for our good. As you think about that scene, Jesus is communicating something to you and I. That the word of forgiveness is not a distant transaction. It's flesh and blood that comes over for dinner. Do you realize the word of God that grants you forgiveness would have had to have wiped breadcrumbs from his beard as he ate with sinners? He would have seen the flicker of candles all around. Flesh and blood, the sound of music reverberated in his ears. He would have heard laughter and there would have probably been inappropriate jokes. These folks hadn't cleaned up their act just yet. Flesh and blood, the word of forgiveness associates with sinners. He would have smelled the wine. Grape juice for half of us here. He immersed himself into the life and interaction and activities of the worst of the worst. He hung out with them. Now, at first glance, that is offensive to some of us. And Jesus explains why it's offensive. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. I'm going to answer why I do this. The same reason I said your sins are forgiven. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You don't get it. You're, you're hiding over in a corner whispering. And you don't see the kingdom right in front of you. What the kingdom has come to do. Jesus says, I am the physician. Physicians heal lame folk. Yet you think you're well. And you think you're well because you are righteous. The well are the righteous. And they do not understand they are sin sick. And Jesus says, I came not to call those who can't see their sin, but sinners. Jesus looking around the room said, I don't have to... Convince these people they're a hot mess. Ain't no convincing here. They know it. You've told them how messed up they are. 
The rest of the culture, they're the messed up crowd. Because they need me. You don't think you need me. You see, this is a picture of the paralytic man. And he says, I came to call those who cannot get up and walk on their own. And I imagine he would have walked over and put his hand on Matthew's shoulder. (laughs) I came to call the sick folk. And yet you stand there in your nice pretty robes and your house is in order and you don't get it. To see the scribes and Pharisees would not follow him because they did not understand they were sick. And they stand around and they ask questions. Why does he say your sins are forgiven? And Jesus would turn to them and say, because you need to have forgiveness of sins. Why does he associate with sinners? He would turn to them and say, because you need to have your sins forgiven. You're a sinner. You don't see it. You don't see what's in front of you. You're blinded by your righteousness. You think you are well. And if you don't see your sin, you can't be forgiven. You can't get up and walk with me. If you don't see your sin, you can't eat with me. Because I came to eat with sinners so that they could be forgiven of their sin. You see, the way to forgiveness and restoration is to confess, I am a sinner. I am sin sick. And some of you are trying so hard to cover that up. You've lived by your own rules and you don't want to admit that. You see, the rule that overshadows all other rules is God created you for His glory to live for Him. But you made up your own rule. And you said, I'm going to live for my glory. I'm going to live for myself. And because we reject God and separate ourselves from God, our life in our life we see rhythms and patterns of self-centeredness. In whatever context we're in, Whatever relationship we have with our parents, with our kids, with our spouse, with our employers, with our friends, with church folk, all of those spheres of relationship, we have the tendency to live for ourselves and say, this is about me and this is about my glory. And so we ask, what are you doing for me? Instead of, what are we doing for God's glory? In all of the places we live, in our home, in our school, in our work, we we create and we, we try so hard to carve out our kingdom, carve out some space so it can be about me and I can do what I want and everyone else is a tool and a prop to serve me. And to some degree, we all live that way and we can all look around and see. If you're honest with yourself today, you see it. We make ourselves little idols that we worship. We make ourselves the king we serve. And because of that, we begin to satisfy ourselves with things that would make us sick if we begin to talk about them today. Our minds and our hearts are filled with things and desires that even embarrass us, but we try to cover them up. Some of us here today, you say, you talk about tax collectors being scoundrels. You don't know what I do with my spreadsheets. You don't know the things people have seen me do and say. And yet we're guilty before God, living for ourselves. And many of us here today, we're trying to cover it up. Maybe you were brought here with your friends to see Jesus. You come in here today and you say, forgiveness of sin, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm at church today. But you still don't get why all these people love Jesus and are packed in around Jesus. You say, I don't get it. 
I'm not that bad. Quit talking about forgiveness. Jesus hangs out with sinners. I thought he hung out with good folks. That's why I came today. I came to church today to convince myself and all these other people that have been inviting me to church that I'm good. That's why I came to church. Well, you came to the wrong church. Because the Bible says that we're sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God and we reject His will in our life. And that's good news to admit that. Understand, your sin has separated you from God, but it's not your sin that keeps you from God. It's your denial of your sin that keeps you from God. All you have to do today is admit you are a sinner. You are an outcast. And Jesus comes over and He eats, fellowships, laughs. You see, many of us are doing what I've done for the eight, last eight months. I think I get COVID at least three times a day now. Right now, my throat's really scratchy. And, and I'm going, <clears throat> oh, I think I got it. Here it comes. My nose is ringing. My ears, I, here it comes. Can I smell? Can I smell? Can I taste? And they, Chorus, bring me the peppermint oil. Let me make sure I can still smell. And I'm sucking down the peppermint oil, making sure I can taste, can I smell? Okay, it's not COVID. I'm good. Oh, I had it three months ago like everybody else. And we spend our days convincing ourselves that we're not sick. And many of us are doing that right now in this moment before God. I'm not that sick. <laughs> Tax collectors, prostitutes, the worst of the worst. That ain't me. And many of us have gathered here today in our Christianity. It's a, it's a NASCAR Christianity. What I mean by that is... We take on the appearance of Christianity and we begin to brand ourselves as Christians. We begin to put on the decals all around us. I've got the Ashland sticker. I've got the Crew sticker. I've got the BCM sticker. Now I'm going to get the CrossCon sticker. I'm going to get the Wana sticker, the Ignite sticker, the Amplified sticker, the Access sticker, the BFG sticker, the Essential sticker. And we begin to brand ourselves as a Christian with all of these things on the outside. And you've got to realize what that can be without Jesus. It's just over-the-counter medication that's keeping you from the doctor. Because you're convincing yourself it's not that bad. With all of these good things. And you're trying to get your house in order. And the reality is, there's nothing in your house that impresses Jesus. And He's way more comfortable in a messy house with sin-sick folks that He came to rescue. And, and here's the thing. Maybe you're here today and you've attended church all your life. I, I've seen church folk who have been in church 20, 30 years get saved on days like today because they played a little game and they went through the motions. And they didn't understand the forgiveness that God offers in Christ. They didn't want to admit it. They wanted to go and play the game and deny that they were really that bad. I've seen it happen, and it may happen today. The reality is your self-righteousness today, that could be your wickedness. That could be your sin. And you're self-righteous about being self-righteous, about not being self-righteous. You're playing little games in your head right now. Well, guess what? Jesus comes to synagogues too. And He casts out demons. And maybe today Jesus cleans your house by casting out the demon of self-righteousness. 
Would you believe in him today? Would you follow him today? Get up and walk. Send sick sinners who hear the words and wake up. The reality is some of us right now, we're dreaming that we're walking and we're really just comatose. And Jesus walks in and says, believe in me and follow me. And we wake up from the dream and we run after him. Maybe that's you today.